Okay, in terms of uh, announcements, just a reminder, we sent out an email the other day about the Leukemia uh, Light the Night Walk on uh, Saturday. It's at 5.30 out of U of H, meet at the, um, what, where, where do they meet, Pam? The what? The Welcome Center, the Welcome Center U of H. And um, uh, that's at 5.30, so plan to get out there maybe... 30 minutes, 45 minutes ahead of time just to meet together. If anybody's interested in going, we sent the link out so you can sign up. Also, um, men's campouts coming up on October the 14th and 15th. Usually, I know a lot of guys work on Friday, but some of us go out there in the early afternoon. We'll get out there about 1 or 2, do some things to set up camp and get things, uh, do a little work on some of the things out there. Um, and then we go until after lunch on on uh, Saturday. Also pray for Brett Nasworth, his family, for the tragic accident they had over the weekend. And uh, one family member died, and he was severely injured. And he's the director of Disciple Makers uh, Multiplied. So uh, that's an important outreach ministry and mission organization. Also... Um, it's time to update the emergency notification information. We have a sheet located in the fellowship hall on the table. Please make sure that you write legibly when you write your phone number and your um, email. Uh, we use this so if there's some situation that comes up, whether it's inclement weather or uh, something in that nature at the last minute, we have to alert everybody that we're uh, canceling uh, church or Bible class at the last minute, we can notify you. So that's important to have that information. Also, uh, Daylight Savings Time is um, begins in one month on November the 5th. The Grand Canyon trip, we still have room for four or five people. It's 3,200 a person. And we are, we've had a couple of people sign up. We still have room. So you can uh, contact me if you want information. Also, um, the two financial needs, we've had a number of gifts that have come in, and we appreciate that for Eager and also for this other situation that we made the congregation aware of. So I uh, just wanted to remind everybody about that. Scripture emphasizes the importance of being in right relationship with the Lord, walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, uh, being in fellowship with the Lord. These are all terms that refer to the believers walk, but when we sin, we're walking by the sin nature. We're walking in darkness to recover. We confess sin. We're cleansed from uh, the, from sin. We're forgiven from from all sin, so that the slate's wiped clean, and we need to keep short accounts. So before we begin our study, I always go through this because it's a good reminder of the importance of confession. Uh, of sin and its uh, role in the spiritual life. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the way in which you continuously provide for each one of us individually watch over us, that you work in each of our lives preparing the tests, the circumstances, the opportunities for application of your word that we might uh, grow as we have learned and apply your word. 
that your goal and your emphasis in our lives is to mature us, to bring us into conformity to the image of Christ. And whether that is our goal or not, that is your goal. And you desire for us to be uh, disciples and to be uh, champion believers. And fathers, we study tonight, we study the battle between the champions, David and Goliath, that we might come to understand more fully what it means to be a champion believer and how you work in our lives to produce spiritual maturity. Now, Father, we pray that you guide and direct our thinking and our study tonight. In Christ's name, amen. We're continuing what I started last time. We'll have a little review as we look at these two champions that are going to engage in one-on-one combat between the army of the Philistines and the army of Israel. And as we have seen in the past, and most people are familiar with in the story of David and Goliath, Goliath is this huge nine and a half, or maybe he's a little bit over that, uh, nine foot nine inch uh, giant who's coming out every day in the style of uh, this this sort of one-on-one combat that was typical in ancient cultures, especially Greek cultures. And remember, the Philistines were part of this massive migration of what's known as the Greek Sea Peoples that occurred in the uh, period from about uh, 1400 B.C. to 1000 B.C. as they established their their cities and their colonies. So that Greek influence um, is, is very uh, prevalent here. It's very much like the kind of one-on-one battle uh, that is told in the um, uh, story of the uh, of the Odyssey, the story of the Trojan Wars. So this is that kind of typical thing. And so we see David, who is not a military man, he's not trained yet, he is underage, the age of going into military service in the uh, uh, army of Israel was 20, he's probably 18 or 19 years of age, and that he is... Um, uh, but he is prepared mentally because that's where the battle ultimately takes takes place is in the mental attitude of the individual. And so what we have to decide spiritually is the answer to these questions. Do you really want to be a champion Christian, a champion believer? Do you want to be the very best that you can be as a believer? Do you, and the Bible uses the term, or Jesus uses the term in the New Testament, to be a disciple. Now, disciple is more than just someone who has believed that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. A disciple is someone who goes to the next step and says, I want to be a student, I want to be a learner, I want to grow uh, to the fullest extent that I can as a as a believer. I want to... Uh, glorify God with every ounce of my being, uh, no matter what that costs. And again and again in the in the Gospels, Jesus was challenging the, uh, the his disciples as well as those others that he taught with the commitment involved in being a a disciple. That it wasn't for uh, those who were. Uh, sissies. It wasn't for those who couldn't take it. It wasn't for those who couldn't make up their mind. Uh, often when we think about this is, I think about the the passage in uh, with the Laodiceans where the Lord says, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spew you out of my mouth. 
And that's not talking about a loss of salvation. That's talking about believers who aren't usable. You know, some people mistakenly think that that hot water is bad or cold water is good, but hot water is usable. We all like hot coffee, hot tea. We like hot water for uh, any kind of uh, hot drink that we're making. We like cold water. We like a cold beverage. Both are usable, but lukewarm is just nasty. It's not usable. We just want to spit it out of our mouth. We set our coffee cup down for a while, forget about the passage of time, pick it up and take a drink, and it's oh, just lukewarm. We don't want that. Uh, that's the point of that analogy. And God is not pleased with believers who opt for mediocrity. And yet we live in a culture today that has majored in mediocrity. I remember hearing a Bible class when I was a teenager all about the failures of mediocre Christians. And I thought, then, that's the last thing I would want to be. Why be a Christian if you're just going to opt for mediocrity and just opt for just just. I'm glad I'm going to go to heaven. And I'd hear this in the first church I passed, I'd hear people say, oh, I don't care whether I'm living in the slums of heaven. And it's always said with sort of a self-righteous tone, uh, whether I'm living in the slums of heaven or living in some spiritual mansion as long as I'm there. Trust me, when you get there, it will make a difference. There's, that's what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. And we're told in 1 John 4 that those... Uh, that we don't want to have shame at the judgment seat of Christ. And there will be those who lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and uh, will not uh, experience all that God would give them because uh, they're opting for mediocrity. And so what we see here in, um, in this chapter is a great example in David of a young man who is a spiritual champion, and he has reached spiritual maturity at an exceptionally young age. That doesn't mean he doesn't have a lot of room to grow. doesn't mean he's not going to be a failure. We know that happened uh, several times later on in in his spiritual life, but he excelled. I've heard people say, well, I've been listening to doctrine for 25 or 30 years. I don't know that I'll ever reach spiritual maturity. Well, Paul told the Corinthians that if you, that after three years that they were failures because they weren't mature yet. They were living like mere men. By that he meant they were living like carnal Christians. They were living their life not on the basis of the Word of God. Uh, they weren't spiritually mature. They were just living no, in no different fashion than they had all of the years up to that point. And we live in a generation today where Bible churches, Baptist churches, traditional evangelical churches have made the same mistake that the uh, churches, I mean, that the Israelites made in the ancient world. They wanted to have what everybody else had. They wanted to have a lot of people. They wanted to have big buildings. They wanted to have uh, the numbers and the money that numbers would bring so that they could have the, the glitz and the facade of success. And it's all superficial because inside those walls, they're, they're falling apart. The, the, the absence of Bible teaching in our churches today is, is just atrocious. And the fact is that people, it's, it's the old analogy you've heard many times of 
of uh, how do you boil uh, a frog. Uh, you don't put a frog in hot water because it'll immediately jump out. You just gradually increase the temperature and the frog won't jump out and you'll boil the frog to death. And that's what has happened over the last 40 to 50 years is that evangelical churches, Bible teaching churches, churches that were historically verse by verse expositional uh, Bible teaching churches uh, began to look at these so-called church growth principles and church growth became a big thing back and started back in the late 60s coming out of Fuller Seminary. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked into a whole history of the negative influence of Fuller Seminary on evangelicalism, but it was out of the missions department at Fuller Seminary that you got these these ideas. And the two major thinkers at the time, in my opinion, were um, responsible for some of the greatest apostasy and heresy to be taught in the church. And this is the Fuller Seminary. It was originally founded on solid doctrinal statement. It was named in honor of a well-known radio evangelist by the name of Charles Fuller. But within 10 years, they watered down their doctrinal statement so that they took the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God out of that doctrinal statement. And then it just dominoed from there. But the the academic influence that uh, brought... Uh, a lot of erroneous teaching in the area of the spiritual life, and especially in this area of church growth, uh, really uh, in, seeped out and influenced all of the major seminaries. And you could trace the whole rise of the emergent church movement today and all of its heresies. You can draw a direct line back to the shifts that took place at Fuller Seminary. So we have a strong Bible teaching evangelical church in the 50s and 60s and through gradualism it gets down to the point where where there's just a handful of of expositional verse-by-verse teachers in in houston i remember uh harry leaf who was pastor of tomball bible church and later grace bible church who ordained me back in 1981 uh harry's uh son is a, a graduate of dallas seminary and he's got he's a businessman but he he goes to a, a, a church where when they were without a pastor, he would fill the pulpit. And Harry told me not, I mean, just weeks before he died a couple of years ago that that his son was the only person who filled the pulpit who would, even though he wasn't teaching, sometimes he would teach every week and sometimes it'd be every other week, but he was, he was expositionally, went verse by verse. He said nobody else that ever comes through that church to fill the pulpit ever teaches verse by verse. And you can go uh, to numerous Bible churches in this city that once were well known for their expositional verse by verse Bible teaching, and it doesn't happen anymore. And if you don't get verse-by-verse Bible teaching, then you're just going to drift in your spiritual life and you're going to become extremely uh, mediocre because you don't learn the Bible. And it's the Bible that, that, that under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that, that changes lives. And that, that's exactly what we see with David. In the first example I talked about last week, the first Uh, under five ways that God produces champion believers, the first test was the test of of, uh, 
of, of training, the test of preparation, that God um, provides perfect training in terms of the tests that he provides and the tests he's providing here for David was really timed for for David. Goliath, I said, had, was, didn't just get born the year before. He'd been around for a number of years, and with all of Saul's wars against the Philistines, we didn't hear Goliath mentioned or see anything. God held him in reserve for David. And that this battle is taking place just to the west of Bethlehem in the Valley of Elah. And you can maybe see this little bitty blue line here. That's the um, intermittent stream that runs through that valley. But when you look at this map, you can see that this Valley of Elah runs uh, right through here and going across to Bethlehem. And that uh, this incursion by the Philistines was such that if uh, Saul didn't stop them, then they would have a wide open path to Bethlehem and then up to Jerusalem, and they would cut Israel uh, cut Israel in half. So this is the overview of that area. And um, uh, the Philistines would be in this area, camped here, and the uh, Israelites over in this area. And it was out in the middle of this valley uh, that you had these champions meet. So David is has met the test of preparation just in terms of review. And what I pointed out last time by jumping ahead in the story to verses 34 through 37, we learned that David was asked by Saul, well, why should you, you're young, you're not a warrior yet, you've never been in combat, you're not tested, what makes you think that you can do battle uh, with Goliath? And so David had to talk about how he had trusted God as a shepherd in protecting uh, the sheep. Now, there's another implied criticism of Saul here because the image and metaphor of a shepherd throughout the ancient Near East was typically applied to leaders and to kings. And so what David is talking about is that as a shepherd, and by analogy that could apply to a king, he had learned to consistently protect the flock that was his responsibility uh, despite the overwhelming odds against him. And so he talks about how as a shepherd, when he would keep his father's sheep, whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, that he wouldn't just sit back and say, oh, well, uh, what can I do to stop a lion or a bear? Now, that's probably how you and I would respond because uh, we're thinking, well, unless I have a 30-odd six or some other high-powered hunting rifle, there's nothing I can do. But that wasn't the mentality in the ancient world, that he went after the uh, lion, would strike it, deliver the lamb from its mouth, so he would take it out of its mouth, not, a, uh, not something you should go home and practice today. <clears throat> and then he would catch it by its beard and hit it over the head, beat it over the head with his, with his uh, shepherd's staff and kill it. So this was, he had trained to do this, and he's trusting God. And we know from ancient inscriptions, such as some of these that I showed you last time, the panels there are from uh, the panels describing the Assyrian, showing the Assyrian lion hunts, and you can see how, how close they were fighting, killing lions with spears from horseback, and 
with uh, bow and arrow and also in hand-to-hand combat. So as pictured in both of the upper panels. So this is this is not something that was unknown at that time. So David has been prepared, and he prepared by having been given responsibilities that he learned to carry out. And so long before he was going to apply those things, he learned and he was responsible. Now, we can think about the ways in which we can prepare for future tests in the Christian life, and that means studying the Word of God, knowing the Word of God, and being prepared. The major tests that might come in your life may not come for 5, 10, 15 years down the road, but the time to prepare is before those uh, circumstances hit. What we also see in this uh, situation is that is that uh, we a picture of what a lack of preparation looks like in verse twenty three as David is talking uh, to his brothers, the champion he 's there at that right time early in the morning because he 's responsible, as I pointed out last time he wanted to get there and have time to get back to go back to the sheep. Uh, he was there early in the morning when Goliath came out and gave his challenge. And David heard him, but the others, his brothers, the other soldiers in the army, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. That's the contrast between a champion and the mediocre believer, is that the champion is going to look at the situation through God's eyes and through the Word of God, but the mediocre believer reacts in fear, worry, anxiety, uh, depression, and they opt for some sort of panacea other than trusting God and looking at these circumstances as tremendous opportunities to see God intervene, to trust God, and to um, glorify Him. So this was the same thing that is repeated in that verse. It had been stated in verse 11 that when Saul and all Israel heard the Philistines challenged, they were dismayed, and they were greatly afraid. So the question that comes out of this in terms of preparation is what are we doing to prepare? How are we managing our time? How are we arranging the time uh, we spend every day so that we can be spiritually prepared for whatever battle that comes? Now let me tell you that whatever the test is, if it's a physical test related to your health, if it's a financial test related to uh, to your money, related to retirement, related to sending kids to college, whatever it is, if it's some kind of financial test, if it is some kind of uh, work-related test dealing with the people and the structures uh, at, at work. And today I think it's a horrible environment in a lot of workplaces, uh, maybe not in Texas, but I know in a lot of places in the country where you have these uh, very liberal policies that are enforced by human resources, and it's very difficult. I was talking with uh, another pastor just last week who had spent about 25 or 30 years in a corporate environment, and he was telling me that he said, I don't know that I could go back and work in a corporate environment today. There are so many little things that you can do as a man and as a Christian 
that can be taken in an offensive way by any number of people who will bring you up on some sort of complaint to human resources and you're gone. You are out of there and you may never, with that blight on your record, you may never get another job again because if you've got to say, well, on an app, fill out on the application what your job history is and you've been let go because uh, you said something that somebody uh, took offense over, then that's going to be discovered and it won't matter what the circumstances are and you'll have a difficult time finding another job. It's a tough environment today. So those may be the external circumstances of the test, but the real test is whether or not you're going to apply the Word of God to that financial crisis or to that health crisis or to that job crisis or to those people who are treating you in a way that that you don't think you should be treated. So we have to be prepared through the study of the Word of God, and that involves three basic things that are very practical. First of all, we need to be reading Scripture daily. And I'm so encouraged by the number of people that that I hear talk about what they're doing is they've taken up the challenge to read their Bible through in a year. We've got that information up on the Dean Bible Ministries website and the reading plan up there, and people are reading, and they're constantly uh, relating biblical circumstances and events and stories to present-day problems, and that's the issue. That's the pattern is to know the Bible not to know psychological principles, not to understand sociological principles, but to know what the Word of God says. So we have to start with basics, reading the Scripture daily, then memorizing Scripture, memorizing promises, taking the promise book uh, that we put together and memorizing those promises as they're categorized, and then just listen to Bible class daily on different on the DBM website. We, you can podcast. You can get it on your smartphone, your iPad, your computer. You can listen to it on the radio in your car, all kinds of things. 15 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day as you're driving to work, driving home, just to put your mind into focus on the Word of God and that God is always faithful and He always sustains us. The second test that we see that David has learned is the test of discernment, the test of discernment, and this is seen in verses 25 to 27. Now, the word discernment in the Hebrew that's translated discernment from the Hebrew is the word bean in uh, Hebrew, pronounced like our word B-E-A-N, but we're not talking about a pinto bean or a lima bean, a little uh, uh, memorizing device that that um, we would learn in Hebrew when we were memorizing vocabulary, being is like between. You're learning to make a decision between two options. So discernment is understanding how to make wise choices. It involves understanding the issues so that many times the Hebrew word being is translated understanding. And it has to do with being able to see what the real root issues are, what the spiritual issues are that uh, lie behind a, uh, a physical situation. And we see this with David. When Goliath comes out to challenge, the men of Israel have fled. They're in fear. They're trembling. Uh, they say to David, have you seen this man who's come up? 
Surely he's come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, so there's going to be great reward. The king's going to shower him with wealth. He's going to marry off his daughter to him and also make his whole family, all of his clan, uh, free from taxes, and uh, uh, that's always a great reward. But David's response doesn't focus on the reward. Doesn't fo- He's not motivated by wealth. He's not motivated by property. He's motivated by the honor of God. And that is also important. If you're going to be a champion, the focal point of your life needs to be theological. It needs to be on the character and honor and glory of God, that that underlies your thinking. That's what motivates your choices. And so when David hears Goliath come out and make this this challenge, his question is, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. See, this is an affront to Israel, God's people. And he then reveals his thinking in the next question. He says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised Israel this land on which they were standing. The uncircumcised Philistine has no right to this land. So let's look at the problem biblically and doctrinally. We have a promise from God that this is our land. This guy obviously isn't party to the to the uh, to the covenant to the promise. So what are we afraid of? God is going to take care of us. And later he makes his famous battle cry that the battle is the Lord's. So that reveals his thinking at this point, and that this is a spiritual issue behind every physical battle. There is a spiritual issue, and we discernment is understanding how to look at the problem spiritually and from that uh, spiritual framework. In the Proverbs, we have several Proverbs that talk about the importance of acquiring discernment, but you don't get discernment uh, coincidentally. You don't get discernment Uh, just by chance. You don't get it just by going through uh, some experiences in life. Discernment, biblical discernment, is the result of biblical study. So in order to develop discernment, the first step is to go back to the first test, the test of preparation. We have to read the Word of God, memorize the Word of God, and study the Word of God, or we'll never develop uh, discernment. Discernment is what develops in our soul as we come to a greater understanding of the Word of God. But at any moment, we can get distracted by the details of life. We can be overwhelmed by all of our responsibilities, the expectations of uh, school or job, career, family, and all of a sudden, uh, the Bible's not a priority anymore. Sometimes people get bored. They've been in the same church for a long time with the same pastor. They've heard the same thing, and they can't make the transition. I learned a long time ago that that if you're a young believer, then a lot of the your motivation is you want to learn this new stuff about the Christian life. You want to learn the right stuff. You want to get answers to your questions. How can I be sure there's a God? How can I be sure 
that I'm saved and eternally secure? How do I really live the Christian life? But if you've been listening to the Word for more than three or four years, you should have most of those questions answered. So if you've been sitting in church for 10, 15, 20 years, you're probably no longer motivated to find out the answers to these questions. You've gotten those answered to your satisfaction. Now you have to change your motivation. Or do you have an answer to those questions to, the, to where you now have the ability to answer others? That's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3.15, to always being ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. It's one thing to have our questions answered where our soul is satisfied. It's another thing to be able to articulate the answer to those who might ask. So we have to be motivated to, from a different direction. As you move towards spiritual maturity, a lot of the reason you come to Bible class isn't to learn new material. It's to be reminded of material that I've already Already learned that I'm constantly in danger of forgetting, to be reminded of the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the power of God, the provision of God, so that I can wake up tomorrow morning and refocus on my spiritual life and continue to press on and not just uh, fall by the wayside and settle for, uh, just settle, just settle for whatever is, just be a mediocre, uh, mediocre believer. And so this is how that attitude is described in Proverbs 2.2. 2. It says you're to incline your ear to wisdom. There's action there. You have to move your, your ear to a place where you will learn wisdom. You have to turn on your phone, turn on a recording device, turn on the media. You have to make it a point to listen to the teaching of the Word and then apply your heart to understanding. You have to think about it. You can't just let it come in and take notes and go home and say, boy, that was good. Now, what's on TV tonight? You have to continue to look back at your notes, think about them, and apply your mind to fully comprehend and understand and then apply what you've learned. In verse 3, the uh, Proverbs writer goes on to say, yes, if you cry out for discernment, if you scream for it like a baby desires the sincere milk of the word, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, you, you say, Pastor, I want to learn the Word. I don't hear that from a lot of Christians in a lot of what's going on in evangelical churches today. And they're starving to death, but they, uh, they, they've just lost it. They're so consumed with activities and, their, and small group fellowship and all these non-essentials that they've forgotten the importance of the Word of God. And then Proverbs 2, 4 says, If you seek her, that is wisdom and understanding, if you seek her as silver, if you're digging for the word of God, for wisdom, like a miner digs for silver, he studies the ground, he learns engineering techniques, he figures out the efficient way to get through the the hard rock and to be able to identify the ore that is embedded in the rock deep below the surface. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, where you're making an intentional, concentrated effort, it takes discipline. It means you, you plan your schedule You plan your work. You plan everything around the most important thing, which is getting the Word of God into your soul and applying it. In Proverbs 4, 5, and 7, we read, Get wisdom. That's a command. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget. 
nor turn away from the words of our mouth. It's so easy to forget. That's our default position is to go to the sin nature. To, to, uh, the, I've often compared the spiritual life to running a car uphill. You have no brakes, and you only have a gear to go forward and neutral, and that's it. And as soon as you take your foot off the accelerator, you slip into neutral and you start going back. You never just stay in one place. You're either going forward and learning and maturing and growing, or you're slipping backward into the the mire of mediocrity. Wisdom is the principal thing. Now, this is written by Solomon. He understands that there's a lot of issues in life that we have to pay attention to. But if you have everything in life and you don't have wisdom from the Word of God, you've got nothing. And you can have wisdom from the Word of God and have nothing in terms of the details of life, and you have everything. Now, I'm not saying that we have to give it all up. This isn't a message on being some, some sort of a, 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 a monk going off into the desert and giving up everything. Uh, this is simply emphasizing we have to get wisdom. To, it makes It's the glue that binds everything else together. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. And then in Proverbs 23, 23, by the truth... And do not sell it. Also, wisdom and instruction and understanding. This is more important than anything else. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Knowledge of the Holy One is called theology proper. It's understanding the essence of God and all of the verses that relate to that. It's not just rehearsing it and, and, and uh, regurgitating the information but it's having it so well-known that it shapes your thinking and your decision-making. So to develop discernment, we have to... It's intentional. It's a concentrated, disciplined effort. Second, we have to learn how to respond to trials. This is what James says. It's more succinct. Peter says the same thing in First Peter 1, but in a greater number of verses. Uh, James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That, that The image there is that they just happen to you. You wake up in the morning thinking everything's going great. Four hours later, you wonder how your world fell apart because things just began to happen. You got in the car and you were out of gas or you had a flat tire. By the time you got somebody out there to repair it, now you're stuck in traffic and you decide to take a shortcut and you have an accident. One thing dominoes into another. We've all had days like that. Uh, We just fall into them, but it's how do we respond? Because we know something. We know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. David understood the principle. He didn't have these verses, but he understood that principle. He's passed all these tests with the lions and the bears, and so he's prepared. Because he's prepared and prepared himself, he has discernment, and he has grown uh, to maturity. So this is what he expresses when he hears the challenge of Goliath. And he understands that there's a real spiritual issue here. So his question, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God, focuses on the fact that God is not uh, an idol. 
He is not made out of wood or metal or stone, but he intervenes in the affairs of men. And this is this title of God is the living God is emphasized numerous times in Joshua 3.10. Joshua uses it in encouraging the Israelites as they get ready to go to battle at Jericho. By this, you shall know that the living God is among you. And he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and Perizzites and Girgashites and Amorites and Jebusites. God is the one who's going to be able to overcome them. Remember, among all those people uh, were the giants. And these were the same people, the numerous people in the land that the original spies in Numbers 13 came and said, oh, they're too great for us. There are too many people and too many giants and they have walled cities. And Joshua says, look, the living God is going to be able to give you victory. Paul says the same thing in the New Testament. He says that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what happened at salvation. When you trusted Christ as Savior, you're going to serve the living and true God. In the Old Testament, when uh, Ezekiah is shut up in Jerusalem by Sennacherib, and he sends out his uh, mouthpiece, the Rabshaka, to uh, uh, threaten him. It's viewed uh, as a reproach to the living God. He sends uh, his messengers to go get Isaiah, and in their report to Isaiah, they said that they described the king of Assyria as the one who uh, is reproaching the living God, and that's described again in verse 16 as a reproach to the living God. It's the same thing. The enemies of God are reproaching the living God. So what are we going to do about it? We have to look at everything from this spiritual grid. Jeremiah twenty three thirty six, the oracle of the Lord, uh, you, you shall mention no more, for every man's word will be his oracle. This is the relativism that is being condemned in Israel at the time. Every person is looking to his own opinion as having value as the word of God. This is what happens in so many Sunday school classes today. Uh, where you go in and they have their little Sunday school quarterly or some other book, and they say, well, now they read the passage so-and-so, and they ask the next person, now what does that mean to you, and what does that mean to you? And, and it's just a, a bunch of nonsense because nobody's studied it. Nobody knows what it means. They're just getting a subjective uh, impression. They're perverting the words of the living God, and that is happening in church after church after church in this country. They're perverting the words of God. And people don't have the discernment because they're not familiar with the word to be able to, uh, to catch it. And we see, um, we see the reaction that occurs as a result of somebody who lacks discernment. Notice how the scripture shows these contrasts. When David says, well, uh, who's going to take on this, this uncircumcised Philistine who's a reproach to the living God? He gets a reaction from Eliab. Anytime you take a stand for the Bible, the people who are resisting, the people who are negative are going to react because they're suppressing the truth in, in unrighteousness. And now when you point out the truth, they're going to react in anger because they've rejected the truth and you're exposing that. Nobody likes to be exposed. And so David's wisdom in identifying the real issue just irritates Eliab to no end. His brother says um, his anger is aroused against David. He immediately reacts in anger and says, well, why did you come down here? 
you should have stayed with those sheep. You're just a, the run of the litter. You're no good. I mean, if anybody had a right to a low self-image, it's David. He's overlooked by his father. He's run down by his brothers. But see, it doesn't matter what those family circumstances may be as long as you understand the truth of God's word. It doesn't matter how tre- people treat you as long as you're focused on the word of God. And then, then you can just let those things pass. Why did you come down here? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? And then, then typical, he accuses David of doing exactly what he's doing. You often see this in politics. One person, uh, usually a Democrat, accuses somebody on the conservative side of doing exactly what they've been doing all along. And you see this happen. It happens on the other side, too, on occasion, but it's more often the left accuses the right of exactly what they're doing. So if you want to know what the Democrats are doing, listen to what they're accusing the conservatives of doing. Notice I said conservatives and not Republicans. There's a difference. Um, So Eliab says, uh, I know your pride and your insolence. He's the one who's proud and insolent. Uh, I know the pride and insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David just handles this in such a tremendous way. He is relaxed. He doesn't react in anger. He doesn't strike back. He doesn't say, well, you're just a spiritual failure. Why, don't you, why didn't you ever listen to those uh, Bible classes we had at home? He never says anything like that. He, he uh, is very calm. He's modest. He doesn't justify or defend himself. Uh, he doesn't lose his, his temper. He focuses on the issue, and he just asks a very simple question. He says, what have, I, what, what have I done? And is there not a cause? Literally in the Hebrew it says, "Isn't uh, it was only a word. You know, it was only a statement. Why are you reacting? Why have you lost your temper when I, it was just a simple question? And then... Um, the next verse, he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And the people answered him as the first ones did. So uh, he just he, he's very calm in the way he handles the situation. He understands the principle of Proverbs 15.1, that a soft answer turns away wrath. And so whether, rather than reacting in kind, he just uh, responds to the situation. And tries to ask a question to expose what's really going on. Now, the third test is the test of humility. The third test is the test of humility, and this is in 1728 um, 1728 to 30. Actually, this is out of order. No, this is out of order because uh, I had the other verse out of order. This is uh, what Eliab is doing. He's arrogant, and David shows his humility, and he understands that humility and is uh, uh, not reacting in anger. That's the test of humility. Now, in 1 Peter 5, 5, we see this emphasized in the New Testament. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. So David is clothed with humility. Eliab is not. He is arrogant, and he is angry with, um, with David. See, anger is often the result of somebody not letting you have your way. You're not able to do what you want to do. Somebody is blocking you, and or they're exposing you, and so you react in, in anger. 
And so instead of being um, angry, David is relaxed. Uh, he's humble. And Scripture says, God resists the proud, but give grace to the humble. Therefore, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And I always like to put verse 6 and 7 together. Verse 7 is a commonly memorized promise, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. But it's the completion of the thought in verse 6. Verse 6 is humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The question is, well, how do I do that? And then you have a participle of means there in verse 7 by casting your care upon him. That's how you humble yourself. Humility is submitting to the authority of someone. Jesus humbled himself to the point uh, of death on the cross by being obedient. He humbled himself by being obedient to God. So uh, humility is the result of, of submitting to God's authority. That's what we do. We're ca- we put it on the Lord. We cast our care upon the Lord. That is how we humble ourselves. The fourth test is the test of authority, authority orientation. We're studying this a lot on Thursday nights in First Peter chapter the last half of chapter 2 and on into chapter 3 and chapter 4. We have to learn to submit to authority. That is the outgrowth of humility. So David shows he's humble and he's passed the humility test and now he's showing that he applies that humility in the area of authority. So David is overheard and the words that he spoke are reported to Saul. I'm not, we're not sure if that's a... Um, Somebody went to Saul and said, hey, we got this guy over here who thinks he can take on the giant, or we have this guy over here who who is making an issue out of this or talking about this. We don't know the motivation, uh, whether the report was, hey, this guy's causing trouble. We don't know whether wh- wh- what the motivation was here, other, just that the words that David spoke were reported to Saul. And so Saul calls for David. So David comes to the king, but he comes with respect. He comes uh, recognizing that Saul is the king, and he's not going to be critical or hostile or reacting to Saul, who's obviously been a failure in pointing out the spiritual issues. David is the good shepherd who understands the issue. He submits to God and he wants to protect the people. Saul is the picture of the bad shepherd who fails to protect the people and doesn't know what to do because he's not focused on the spiritual issues. So David goes to report to Saul. Verse 32, we read, Then David said to Saul, Let no no one's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Well, Saul's heart is already failing. It's been failing for 15, 20, 30 days, however long the challenge has been going on. And so David says, well, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Nobody be afraid. I'll go fight him. And Saul says, he probably says this with a certain amount of incredulity, you're not able to take on this Philistine. I mean, you're, you're probably 5'5 five, five or 5'6, five, and this, this Philistine is over nine and a half feet tall. How in the world are you going to take him on? You don't have uh, the weapons or the training of a warrior. How can you do this? And so uh, Saul says, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're a youth, which means he's probably between 15 and 20, probably closer to 
uh, 20. He is still growing, still developing. He says, you're a youth, but he has been a man of war from his youth. He's experienced, he's trained, he knows all the tricks, and, um, and he outs- he's outsized you. This is when David talks about his experience. Now, we've already talked about these verses in verses 34 to 36, but this puts him in, in context. He, it's, he passes the test of authority. He is going to humbly represent what he has done to Saul. It's how he uses his history that's important here. We use these verses to talk about how David, how it prepared David. But what I'm pointing out here is that when Saul asked him the question, so why should I let you go fight Goliath? David, in a very calm, objective manner, gives Saul his resume. He demonstrates that he is respectful of Saul's authority. He gives him the information that Saul is is asking for, and he understands. uh, And then he draws the comparison in verse 36, that just as I have killed, or just as your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. He brought it right back to the spiritual issue and the spiritual uh, focus. And then in verse 37, he says, uh, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so he has been able by rehearsing what he has done, remind or telling Saul about his his preparation, he has uh, presented Saul with his uh, with an, a cogent argument for why he should be able to go fight uh, fight the Philistines, and he understands this respect for authority. This goes all the way through David's life. Well, I've talked about the two episodes: the one at at Engedi and the one out in the um, uh, fields when two different occasions when David could take Saul's life after Saul had been trying to kill him. Uh, David says, you can't uh, stretch out your hand against the Lord's anointed and remain guiltless. This is a principle of authority orientation. He is humble, he's obedient to God, and he recognizes the uh, authorities uh, that have been set over him, uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. And then we come to the fourth test, which is the test of human good. The test of human good. Human good is not the good that is produced by God the Holy Spirit in our life. It's the good, the morality, the ethics, whatever that man can produce on his own. But without God working in you, it's just the work of the flesh. It's just good deeds that don't count for eternity. And this is pictured here in this next episode. Saul calls David over and says, well, you're not really prepared. Let me put my armor on you. Now, there's two things going on here. The first is that Saul, who stands head head above everybody else in Israel, is probably a good eight, six or eight inches, probably eight or nine inches taller than David, and he's going to put his armor on David. Do you think it'll fit? No, it's not going to fit very well, number one. Number two, he, Saul is probably thinking, if David is wearing my armor, then when the people see him go out, they won't know who's wearing the armor. I'll get the credit. 
So he's pretty crafty about that. Uh, Saul is going to clothe him with his armor, but David knows that he doesn't need Saul's tools. He doesn't need to do the right thing, kill Goliath the wrong way. He just needs to go out there with the weapons God has trained him to use, his sling and his uh, shepherd's uh, staff and his rod. He's He's got those three things, and he knows that he can use them. So Saul's trying to give him all this stuff that would be counterfeit good to uh, make it look like he's finding some something else to rely on other than the Word of God. This is one of the most important principles in the Christian life and one that is completely lost today, and that is this emphasis on the sufficiency of God's Word, that that, that is all we need in order to uh, realize spiritual growth, spiritual success, and happiness in life. God wants us to be happy, not happy as the world sees happiness, but happy as as God has defined it for man, real stability, real soul contentment, and tranquility. I want to read a couple of excerpts from an article that came out uh, at the end of August in American Thinker by Bruce Davidson called The Death of Evangelicalism. And in a summary... What he is saying is what I've said for 40 years is that evangelicalism has died because it has lost the sufficiency of God's word. We no longer believe it's the word of God and the word of God alone, but people often think that that maybe I'm just overstating the case and being hyperbolic. So I thought I would read this from somebody else. I've never heard of him before, don't know anything about him other than he's a good, clear thinker. He talks about the death of evangelicalism, and he says, At one time, evangelical meant a clear commitment to biblical authority and historic Protestant doctrine. Now, there were five things that were said that were sort of the slogans of the Protestant Reformation, and they all are Latin, and they all begin with the word sola. And sola is where we get our word solo. It means alone. And the first is by faith alone. Or actually, the first is sola scriptura, by the word of God alone, scripture alone. Not scripture plus psychology or sociology or, or any of these other things or, or uh, scripture plus the latest polls or anything like that. It's the scripture alone. Then it's by faith alone, uh, by grace alone. These are the important things, but I just want to focus on the Bible alone. And he, so he, that's what he points out, is evangelical originally meant a clear commitment to biblical authority, the Bible alone. And he said, but now the term is applied to a wide range of people, from bizarre TV faith healers to religiously affiliated social justice warriors. Evangelical, and might I add, Bible church, no longer represents any consistent body of beliefs or even political commitments. In fact, when I was at Dallas Seminary, I don't think there was one faculty member who would vote for a Democrat. And now I wonder if there's any that would vote for a Republican. You go start drifting liberal in your theology, you will drift liberal in your politics, and that will happen. So... He goes on to say that some blame recent secular trends for this change, such as leftism and postmodernism, but the evangelical world has been committing slow suicide for a long time. Forty years ago, 
I could say this in my own experience. Forty years ago, my own evangelical seminary had already opened its door to the forces that would one day seriously undermine its own basic beliefs, and today the doors of evangelical institutions are open even wider to the same corrupting influences. Now, you ask, what are those corrupting influences? Well, he tells us. He said others could be mentioned, but perhaps the greatest factor in evangelical decline are psychology, sociology, and politics. Psychology, when the evangelical churches started having Christian counseling classes instead of teaching men to trust the sufficiency of the Bible, they signed their death warrant. And you go to these churches, these big churches today, and what they have done is they've used a mix, a blend of psychology and sociology, and they've blended this together and developed techniques for how to get a lot of people to church. I remember Harry Leaf told me, he said, Robbie, anybody in the flesh can build a big church and a big organization, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit had anything to do with it. So... This guy goes on to say the greatest force to remold evangelicalism, to reshape it, may be psychotherapism. In the past, many evangelical institutions slammed the door shut on humanistic theological liberalism. Ironically, they then let the same kind of thinking in the back door in the shape of humanistic psychology. He says evangelical institutions largely abandoned an emphasis on Bible exposition. That's why you can't find pastors teaching verse by verse anymore. They abandoned an emphasis on Bible exposition, doctrine, and moral living in favor of promoting therapy for practical problems and emphasizing self-actualization. You can find this article on American Thinker uh, and read the whole thing. But what he said there in that last part is, is that you look at these churches, they're not doing verse-by-verse exposition. They're, they're, they're all these messages on Sunday mornings, how to have a better marriage. Nothing wrong with that. But if you do, you've got to learn the Word of God. That gives you the answer. You, you've got to learn these things. You don't just, you don't just ignore this and develop a, a, a free-floating, self-help, motivational uh, style of preaching. But that's what's going on. That is human good. This, that's the armor of Saul. That is not people teaching people to think that the battle is, is the Lord's. And so David's conclusion is, I can't walk with these things for I have not tested them, but I've tested the Lord. I tested him with the bear. I tested him with the lion. And God gives me the victory. I know the word of God is true. Now, this is just a chart of our sin nature diagram Personal sin is what we normally think of as the product of the sin nature, but the person who's an unbeliever can produce a lot of morally good things. But it's a wrong wrong way of doing things. If you do a right thing in a wrong way, it's wrong. And if you do a right thing in the power of the flesh, it's still wrong. And that's what David was dealing with here. Zechariah 4.6 says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power. It's not by technique. It's not by learning the right sociological principles or building your church on the basis of the latest polls. It's not by uh, being psychological in your teaching. 
It is by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And therein lies the importance. So what we have there in the last test is the test of human good, and it is passed by David. And so now he is prepared to go face the giant because he understands the battle isn't his. It's not based on his technique. It's not based on uh, his getting the right degrees. It's not based on uh, sociological and psychological principles. It's based on complete, 100% exclusive trust in the Word of God and the power of God. It's the sufficiency of Scripture. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things and be reminded of of your goodness, of your provision for us, and the Father, the fact that you are an omnipotent God who is more powerful than any circumstance we face. You are an omniscient God who is not surprised by any situation we face. And you are able to provide everything, uh, everything for us. You are with us in your omnipresence. You indwell us through God the Holy Spirit. Uh, you are uh, living inside of us as the Holy Spirit and as the Lord Jesus Christ who is in us, uh, our hope of glory, Father. We trust in you. We trust in your word. And we know that whatever circumstances we face, they are not too great for your grace or for your power. And we pray that we will learn to trust you exclusively in Christ's name. Amen.